I didn't know anyone that was lost in the Oklahoma City bombing, but I do know what it's like to feel grief and pain and needing that hope that comes from moving through that process. And so for me, getting to connect with the families and the people and the responders and even the news media who were there, it makes me feel like part of the marathon. And to me, that is something that can't be replaced. Welcome back to the Run to Remember Memorial Marathon podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Fairs. This week, family member Ryan Witcher joins us to reflect on the life of his father, Alan G. Witcher, and explain how the memorial and marathon provide comfort and hope to him and his family. Then, Katie Elliott, a registered dietitian and professor of nutritional sciences, is back with more dietary training tips and an update on her personal running journey. And last, Zach Craig and Adam Wisniewski from the Oklahoma City Convention and Visitors Bureau explain how the marathon is a beacon of growth for the city's tourism industry. The 2023 Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon takes place the weekend of April 28th through the 30th. Visit okcmarathon.com to sign up to run or to volunteer. It's going to be a great episode, so let's get started. The Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon isn't just another marathon. We run to remember the 168 killed on April 19, 1995, and to honor the family members, survivors, and first responders. Joining me now alongside race director Kerry Watkins is family member Ryan Witcher, who lost his father, Alan G. Witcher. Ryan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Ryan's all grown up. (laughs) When he lived in Oklahoma City, he was a a kid, and... Now he's a dad and a trustee of the memorial, and his family's been really involved in the marathon through the years. And thanks for being with us, Ryan. I'm very happy to be here. Ryan, tell us about your dad. Just tell us about his personality and memories that you have. We would just love to hear stories about him. Sure. Yeah. My dad was um, scary big. Is the way I would describe him. He was just this hulking, scary man that, like, if you saw him, you would you would just immediately know that like he had a presence to him, right? It was funny. He, you know, he was in law enforcement. He was the Secret Service agent. And he just had that aura about him that you would, you would expect a Secret Service agent to have. But on the inside, he was actually like very funny. He was a goofy guy. I was like recently watching old Christmas videos. And he just was a kid at heart still when he needed to be and had fun. So he was two things at once, right? Like he could be intimidating. And then he could also be so loving and so sweet with us, with me and my sisters. But he was fun. He was he was a goofball at the end of the day, a lot of the times. And I, I just have a lot of fond memories of joking around at the dinner table, doing things like that, you know, playing games. We had Witcher Family Fun Night. We'd watch The Simpsons. It was just, you know, we had a very sweet, happy, nice family that kind of your standard nuclear thing going on. And it was just a, a great time. And you guys had just moved to Oklahoma City prior to the bombing. Your dad had come here, as I've read, and talked to you guys. He'd left an assignment at the White House, right? And he had come to raise you in a quieter, kinder place. When we were living in Maryland, he was on the presidential detail for both Bush Sr. and Clinton. He was gone all the time. You know, Clinton's going to Vienna for two weeks. He's going to Vienna for two weeks. So there was a lot of time where he would just have to be gone for extended periods of time. And the irony of this all was that he wanted to go to Oklahoma to a place where he could be home every day at five, spend more time with the kids, spend more time with the family, be in a quieter lifestyle. And Oklahoma completely fit that bill. And for the 
10 months we moved in August, you know, from August to April, it was, it was everything we had wanted it to be before, obviously, this unfortunate tragedy happened. It's really remarkable. I, I had the pleasure of taking both President Bush and President Clinton through the Gallery of Honor. And when they see your dad's face, how they stopped and told this, the most remarkable stories. And I, I think that says so much about him that he really did impact and they knew him by name and about his kids and just great stories they had of, of your dad. And I'll, I'll never forget that. And I hope you guys know the impact he made on two presidents. Yeah, we absolutely do. Bush Sr., before he passed, he had like referenced my dad in like multiple different interviews and stuff that we had seen over the years. Yeah, they loved him. I mean, he, he was one of those people that's like, and, you know, I, I said he was intimidating, all those things. He was, but like, you just, you loved it. He had this way about him that I think people were just naturally drawn to, even presidents. So you, were you at Sequoia Middle School when this happened? I was. I could jump over my backyard fence and be on the football field at Sequoia Middle School. Right. Tell us a little bit about April 19th, 1995, and how you found out and how that day unfolded. Sure. I was in sixth grade at the time. I was 12 years old. We knew something had happened in the morning. Everyone kind of like felt something. And at school, they let us know that there was something that happened downtown, some type of explosion, building, something going on. And my immediate reaction was, I bet my dad's down there solving a problem, fixing things right now. That was the type of person he was. He he was a man of action, right? And so the whole day, during the day, I wasn't worried. The idea of him being involved in a negative way, like something happening to him, I couldn't even fathom the idea of that. And so I, I, I went about my day happy, almost excited to know that my dad was helping out. And maybe in the back of my mind, I knew something could be wrong, but I just didn't want to know it. So every day after school, there was this place called Brahms, the ice cream place. We would go there every day after schools where all the kids went to hang out and do whatever. And it's 1995, there's payphones, right? I lived you know, two feet away. I could have just walked home, but I, I, I called my mom and I just asked her, is everything okay? And she told me she was in the building. We have no idea what happened to him. We have people down there trying to figure things out, Ryan, but like we, we don't know. And I just lost it. It was, it was the most devastating feeling, knowing, like thinking that everything was better than okay. And then realizing that my entire world could be over in that moment. And I was so overwhelmed and didn't know what to do. And I, I, I stayed there for a while and then I just went home and, and there were so many people at home already. This was not a normal, like we're worried, but we think things are going to be okay. This was bad. You know, we had priests at the house, things like that. And then it was just a waiting game. Unfortunately, we didn't know for two more days exactly what happened. That night, a secret service agent that was, was extremely close with my father, with my family, like had flown out. He got to Oklahoma City that night. And came to our house and and told my mom that you know that it was very unlikely that he would have been able to survive. So we knew that night that things weren't good, and then we eventually, forty eight hours later, got like information. Um, but that waiting, that waiting was was awful and exhausting. Brian, I think one of the things that really speaks to me about your story is that your first assumption of your dad was that he was there helping. So I, I love that 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 character held true to you till the very end. I just can't imagine what the waiting was like, those 48 hours. What are your memories from the days after and after you found out that he had passed away? This, it happened on a Wednesday. On Friday morning, I wanted to go back to school. I can't just sit here and stew on this. I just didn't want to do it. It was, it was so overwhelming. And the adults were worrying about adult things. 
And I needed to be around my friends and just act like everything was normal. So I went back to school on Friday morning and my mom ended up coming to the school a few hours later and they called me into the principal's office. And I already knew. I honestly, I didn't even cry when they told me because I had already, I already knew. But as a 12-year-old boy whose hero had just died, all I wanted to do was pretend that nothing happened. And I did that for a really long time, honestly. It's, it's a hard, emotionally shattering thing to go through, right? As a, a, a boy trying to become a man and losing the man who you think is everything, who's everything you want to be, and that's gone. It's, it was really hard. And I spent a lot of time, and maybe I mean, everyone, I think that goes through something like this, spends the, their whole life kind of dealing with that emotion of trying to figure out what to do in those moments. After the bombing, you finished that year, and then you guys moved back, or did you stay another year? So we moved back in July. We moved back in the same old neighborhood we had lived in, in Maryland. My my grandparents lived in Maryland. My mom's sister and brothers lived in Maryland. Cousins, just, we had a family support group in Maryland that was there for us, that we really needed mm-hmm. to just tap into. Um, Absolutely. Your mom was one of the people who testified in the trial. What was that experience like for her, for your family? She was. You know, when people go through tragedies like this, you feel really helpless. And this was a moment to not be helpless, right? There's something she could do to forward along the cause of at least getting getting some form of justice out of what happened, right? And And she wanted to be a part of that. My mother is an incredibly strong human being. Like she sat there and she faced Timothy McVeigh and she said what she needed to say. And I think it was probably therapeutic for her. Also incredibly hard. But I mean, I have so much pride now, now that like I'm, I'm older and I have kids and stuff and I reflect on like what my mom did. I mean, what an amazing human being she is. It's unbelievable. I can't even. Remarkable, really. She is. Yeah, I can't even fathom going through what she went through. I mean, they, they, they started dating when they were, I think, 17, 18 in high school. And my dad was 40. My mom was 40 when, when he died. So more than half of her life, her kids, everything just like gone in an instant. And I have no idea how she did it. And, and she did an amazing job and then still had the strength to go and testify and, and make sure that we got what we wanted out of that. And tell us about your family. Yeah. So I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, two girls. I think I was destined to only have girls for my entire life. That's the curse of your sisters, I, I, by the way. It is. Yeah. Both. There's no boys, no boys in my family. It's just me. I, you know, the joke is that my mom got it perfect with me. So why bother having any more? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you're doing great, but it is, it is kind of amazing what we get and how we get to do it and just how you carry on your dad's legacy. I think, you know, I, I see that in you. You were raised by an incredible woman. Your mom has an incredible strength. And you realize that when you look back and realize she raised three teenagers and the job she did. But as a parent, how do you keep this st- story alive? And how do you tell your kids about their granddad they never got to meet? Right. It's, it's, it's interesting. Now that I have a six-year-old, she's in first grade. She's starting to understand things about the world just in general. And she's aware of my dad. She knows what happened, like loosely knows what happened exactly. And I just, I want to, I tell her positive stories. I tell her about my childhood. I tell her all the fun stuff. That's what she needs to know. Like one thing I learned from this happening to me was that the world's going to bring pain to you some other way. I don't need to give it to her. I don't need to like show it to her ahead of time. Right. I still want her to know what happened. I still want her to understand 
the aftermath and all the things that came out of this. I know that's like a, a, a weird thing to say that a good thing came out of this, but I don't want to focus on the negative. I'd rather think positively, show her positive things, show her pictures. And then as she gets older, she'll she'll learn about the stuff and I'll walk her through it. But I, I want to start positive. Yeah, this is, this is the thing about the Witcher family I've always loved is you've always looked for the very best and the very worst. So tell me a little bit about the Witcher army. You guys came to run a couple of times, the marathon. You're going to come back this year. Tell us a little bit about why you like the marathon and why it's so important to you guys. Yeah. Well, so we were talking about positive, right? The marathon's a, a positive thing. It's a good feeling. I'm not, I'm not a runner by trade. I did do the half one time. It took a lot of work. My sister and I did it. But there's just this feeling of peace you get from being around the memorial, from being around a bunch of other people who are there supporting you, supporting the museum. It's therapeutic. It really is. Like My family is all away from Oklahoma, right? We only spent 11 months, 10 months in Oklahoma coming back, but coming back for a positive reason, not coming back just to like stew on what happened, but to get to be around a bunch of people that are enjoying themselves, are reflecting on it, but in a, in a, in a happy way and like doing something positive. It's, it's just such a great feeling. Um, yeah, we've rolled deep a couple times when we did the half. It was really cool. One of the secret service agents that was a current agent saw that we were wearing secret service shirts. And he was running near us. It's like, hey, can I just like run with you guys for a while? And what a cool feeling. Like, it's uh, like, I can't get moments like that at home, right? But I can get them in Oklahoma. And it's a really cool feeling. Wow, that's a powerful story. That is, yeah. As a family member, what does the 168 seconds of silence before we start the race mean to you? And how do those banners along the course make you feel when you see them? Yeah, it's just it's it's a moment to just take a breath, right? Everyone's lives are are so hectic these days and everything. And I think sometimes we kind of forget to like be in the moment, and that silence does that for me. You take those seconds and you reflect on the fact that like a lot of people got cut off short, a lot of kids got cut off really short, and let's all take a breath, take a moment, realize where we are, realize you don't have to worry about everything that's going to happen in the future, and you don't have to feel regret for everything that's happened in the past and you can just be there for a second. I love those moments of silence where you just get to sit there and just just say thank you. I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we're still going. I'm glad this is happening. And then and then you can just go on. The banners are cool. The banners that wasn't there, I don't think the the first time we ran, the banners weren't there. And that's like that got added somewhere somewhere along the way of uh what year what year is this of the marathon? Twenty third. Twenty three, right? Twenty third. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's cool, you know, it's like a nice homage and something to like look for and and see that everybody is represented. The marathon finds little ways with like honoring each person coming up to the marathon and then having the banners and all that stuff. It it gives like a little bit of individuality to it as well, which is important. It's almost like when the numbers get big enough, you know, they don't have to be people anymore. But that's not the case. It's actually, you know, horrifying regardless of the number of people that, that are that die in any of these types of tragedies and, and having the banners, having the seconds, all these things, it, it gives an individual nature to it that I think is like very, very well needed. We've got a powerful story, Ryan, and you've, you really have, your whole family has found 
the best in the very worst situation. And I just, we're honored to work with you and honored to have you at the memorial. And tell us a little bit about what the memorial means to you and why it's so important that your dad is remembered for what he did. Anyone that's never been there, you have to go at least once. Please go once. I'm begging you. It's it's crazy. The memorial is essentially in the in the exact spot where my father died, right? And I go there for happiness, which is like so weird. Like you wouldn't think it's that's what it is, but it's this amazing, beautiful, peaceful place that when you're there, if you didn't know it, you would never have any idea that a giant explosion took place there. And out of that like giant explosion and all this rubble and everything turned into this beautiful thing. And I think it's just like a testament to what people can actually do. And the the chairs, I can just go sit at the chair. It's it's almost like a second gravesite to me where I can go there and be alone with my thoughts or like be with my dad and he's still there with me. And it's like what a cool feeling. It's it's great. I, I don't know if there's any other place or any other way you could have done it. Every time I'm there, it's the happiest place I could be. Ryan, thank you for sharing your story about your dad. I'm, we're still tremendously sorry for your loss, but we appreciate you sharing your stories and sharing your encouragement and hope with us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And we look forward to seeing Race Weekend. Yes, yes. I look forward to meeting you Race Weekend. Oh, I'll be there. I will be there Race Weekend. Thank you, Ryan. All right, thank you. Since its partnership began in 2016, Express Employment International has enthusiastically co-sponsored the 5K race. Express leadership and employees supported us 100% when we made the decision to move the 5K to Saturday. I'm Bill Stoller, CEO of Express Employment International. With our international headquarters in Oklahoma City, Express is privileged to be part of the Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon. We honor the memory of those lost and forever changed on April 19th. We salute the courage of all who responded to help the healing, and we celebrate the unbreakable spirit of all Oklahomans. Good luck, runners. May the wind always be at your back. Katie Elliott is an associate professor in nutritional sciences at the University of Oklahoma's Health Sciences Center, the academic partner of OU Health, which is the presenting sponsor of the Memorial Marathon Health and Fitness Expo. She joins me now with tips on how to get the most of meals and snacks while training for a marathon. Katie, welcome. Good morning. We're glad to have you back. Thanks for having me back. Yes. Super excited to be here. Yes. This so, Katie joined us last season on season one of the podcast, episode eight. If you want to go check that out, she had lots of good information then. Hoping to get some more today from you. You had probably some of the most concise advice that I remember. <laughs> what is it? Nothing new on race day. Yes. <laughs> I love that piece of advice from food to clothing to just your daily practices before a race and day of. So anyway, we'll refer back to that some. So Katie, just tell me a little bit about you first. You're a PhD, an RDN, an LD, and an FAND. What does all that mean? Right. Gosh, it makes me sound really important, but really <laughs> what it means is that I am a registered and licensed dietitian. And that means that I've completed the training, the science background, the psychology, sociology, to really be able to engage with people about food and their bodies and just kind of the mental and social aspects of food as well. And the FAND means I'm a fellow of our Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, just that I'm invested in making sure that people get the best nutrition information possible. Perfect. And you're also a runner, which 
I love that you're able to incorporate that knowledge into what you do. How do those two things go hand in hand for you? You know, it's fun because being able to know the science behind how our bodies are fueled is really helpful to me, but also I get to live it and walk it and see, like some of the tips I'm going to give you today are things that I've just started incorporating even into this recent training cycle and getting to really see how food and fuel impact my well-being and my running. You get to practice what you preach. Yeah. <laughs> so you publish research and you teach classes in nutrition. What are some of your best tips for those in training? You know, what are things to eat? And then also, what are things maybe you wish you could stop people from doing? Oh, goodness. How much time do we have? <laughs> well, when I think about nutrition for marathon training or even half marathon training, or maybe it's even just your 5K or you're doing the senior marathon this time, I think the most important thing is to plan your fuel just like you would any of the other aspects of your training. Many of us runners spend a lot of time putting in thought about what gear we're going to wear, what route we're going to run, but we also need to be thinking about how we're going to fuel our bodies. So what specific tips do you have for these training runs as we're practicing? What should we be eating? Is there a caloric need we need to be meeting? Do we need protein, carbs? What is it that we should be going after? Great question. And I think a lot of people have that question because there can be a lot of confusing information out there. The first thing I want to say is that everyone is very individualized. And that's the beauty of the training cycle is that you have the opportunity to practice, see how you feel, see how you're running and try things out. But probably my three biggest things are that you need to be eating before, during, if you're running more than an hour, and after your run. And can we get by without eating before we run? I'm guilty of that even, you know, just because I didn't have time or I wasn't hungry. But you can really see a difference when you actually eat just a little bit of something before you head out the door or get on the treadmill. Any good things to eat? I would go simple carbohydrate. I, I know that sounds strange coming from a dietitian, but something like some graham crackers or a handful of cereal, and it can even be... <laughs> a sugary cereal. Uh -huh. The one that I've gotten onto, and my husband's a dentist, so I'm probably going to get in trouble later <laughs> for saying this, and my students would laugh too, but it's fruit snacks. I steal the fruit snacks from my kiddos, grab some, and it just gives me enough of that simple carbohydrate to make me feel good during my run. Well, and it's easy and quick and, and grab and go for sure. And so you talked about the, the hour threshold. So if you're running over an hour, that's when you should start to fuel during your runs. Right. How often? I would say about every 20 to 30 minutes. Again, this is going to be a little bit individualized, something I've played around with. Also might depend on how hot it is outside, how well you ate the day before, but plan to have enough to get in either a little gel or a couple of pretzels. It really can be anything. It doesn't have to be anything specific. Is there a calorie intake you should be shooting for? Or? I like to encourage people to really just go based on how you feel and getting in those carbohydrates. Okay. Now, I know you are aware that we've added a senior marathon this year. So that has me thinking, how do our needs change, one, as we age? And is there anything in particular that those in the senior age group should be looking at in their nutrition? 
Absolutely. You know, one of the things that happens as we age is our bodies just naturally decrease in the amount of water we hold in our body. Some of that has to do with decrease in muscle mass. But then there's a double whammy that oftentimes as we're getting older, we don't feel thirsty as often, even when the body does need water or fluid. And so I would say you've got to pay attention to hydration even more so as we age than we did when we were younger. So keeping those fluids. Interesting. What are your tips for hydration on a race day or race course? I would say stay ahead of your thirst, you know, making sure that you are getting fluids before you get thirsty. I like to alternate uh, water with an electrolyte beverage. So whatever is on the course or whatever you have somebody handing off to you and making sure that you're stopping at those water stops as frequently as possible. And practice that during your training runs. Practice drinking fluids. Right. Because you can find out what will be offered ahead at, this, right. at the race stops. So right. that's, a good, that's a good piece of advice to know what will be out on the course to practice that if you want to. And, you know, I think an important side note is that running without fluids or food is not a badge of courage. It doesn't mean that you're a stronger runner if you can make it through that long run without any fluids or food. That's actually not a very smart way to run. So you want to make sure to try to get something in. Katie, in our last interview, you mentioned that you like to read cookbooks for fun. You have any favorites? Sorry, I, that made me chuckle for a minute. It makes me sound a little nerdy, but yes, <laughs> I will read any cookbook that is written by a runner, that's written by a dietitian, athlete. So one of the ones I've been into lately is called Run Fast, Eat Slow. And it really just focuses on what's some good fuel that we can get in before, during, and after those runs. Okay, I'll have to check that one out. Now let's talk about your personal running journey. Last year, you shared with us that you had just finished chemo for breast cancer and that after coming out of that, you had a PR. What have your races looked like since then and how are you doing personally? Thanks for asking that question. I ran the full again in April and PR'd by another four minutes and finally broke the four-hour mark, which Amazing. was a goal I'd had for over 20 years. It's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. So I am planning, I'm training to run again the full this spring, and I actually have hired a running coach this time. It's an investment, but just trying to switch it up and really focus in on maybe making another PR. Uh-huh. And when do you find the time to run? You are a working mom, correct? Yes, I am an early morning runner. I have a group of women that we meet early, 5 or 5.30 and run and just get it done. So you mentioned that you have some new tips that you're practicing this year. What are those? I mentioned I've been working with a running coach, and two of the things that we've been working on together is admittedly eating before those shorter runs. I was really guilty of, because I run early, not taking the time to eat something. And it was funny because she said one time, well, if you have time to sit and drink a cup of coffee, you have time to eat a little something. And that really spoke to me. And then also eating after my runs. Like you mentioned, I'm a working mom on those long run days. I've got to get kids to basketball games and birthday parties and things. And I was doing a terrible job of refueling. Now that I'm refueling better, I actually have the energy to get through that day and to be present with my family and do all the things that I need to do. Have you noticed a difference in your recovery like the next day or the following day? Absolutely. And I think that's a big part of why that post-run fuel is important is so that that next day you're not as sore, you have more energy, and you can really lean into that rest day a little bit better. Has working with a running coach brought you any other new things that you've put into practice? 
Yes. So I am doing what I like to call embracing the easy run. So I had never really thought about my pace on my long runs. And she has me on some runs just really slowing down, which is sometimes can be hard, really hard. (laughs) But working with someone and kind of talking through that has really helped me. And I can see the benefits when I do have a harder workout, when I'm doing tempo or when I'm doing fartleks and things like that. Okay. What are your memories of April 19th, 1995? Are you from Oklahoma City or from the area? So I'm actually from Dallas originally, and I was a sophomore in high school. And I still remember I was in fine arts class, and they wheeled in the TV on the cart. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, just watching what was happening, and I was just confused. I didn't understand. And, you know, we didn't get media back then the way we do now. And so I remember that slow process of waiting to see what happened and and why, and just really not being able to grasp that. And then how did you get to the Oklahoma City area? Well, I um, met my husband in college, and he's from Edmond, and so moved up here to do grad school and stayed here in Oklahoma. And what does the marathon mean to you? What does the Memorial Marathon mean to you personally? You know, Kristen, I didn't know anyone that was lost in the Oklahoma City bombing, but I do know what it's like to feel grief and pain and needing that hope that comes from moving through that process. And so for me, getting to connect with the families and the people and the responders and even the news media who are there, it makes me feel like part of the marathon. And to me, that is something that can't be replaced. It gives me that reason to wake up at 5 a.m. and get out there and do those miles. Well, Katie, thank you for your nutritional information. Thank you for your inspiring story. I'll look forward to seeing how you do on race day. Wishing for another PR for you and the best of luck in your goal of achieving that. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today. We're joined by Zach Craig, president of the Oklahoma City Convention and Visitors Bureau, and Adam Wisniewski, vice president of sports business for the Oklahoma City Convention and Visitors Bureau. Thank you guys for coming today. We're glad to have you. We're glad to have you back. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Yes. Thank you both. Really excited to be back. Yeah, this is great. You're too. Can't wait. Yes. (laughs) So let's start with you, Zach. Can you tell us about what you do at the Visitors Bureau? Sure. Well, Visit OKC has a contract with the city of Oklahoma City and to serve as the official destination marketing organization for our community. So what that means is we expose and welcome visitors to really haul the rich hospitality assets that we have in Oklahoma City. And that includes marquee events like the marathon, like the Women's College World Series that happens every June. And that includes working with our stakeholders to fill up our brand new beautiful convention center as well. And lots of hotel rooms. Lots of hotel rooms, lots of rich attractions, First Americans Museum, tour memorial as well. So very busy with everything that's brand new here in Oklahoma sure. City. And Adam, what about you? Yeah, so in, I oversee sports tourism for the CVB. And what we're looking to do there is utilize sports as a tool to power economic impact and visitation throughout the city. And so our goal is really twofold. The first part is obviously supporting the events that we have here on an annual basis, trying to grow those events. So you think about the Women's College World Series, the Memorial Marathon, a lot of people know of all the great things happening out at River Sports. So those are examples of events that we host year after year, but we also want to go out and find new tournaments and new events that we can be bringing to Oklahoma City. So there's a lot of power in sports. What do you think the chances are we're we're moving back to pre-pandemic numbers? 
I mean, you guys see it in sales and hotel rooms and all that. Well, from a sports standpoint, I think that we were probably the part of the industry that started to recover the fastest during the pandemic and shortly thereafter. One of the very first things that people were wanting to do and willing to do was engage in youth sports, especially those that were taking place outside. Families wanted their kids to get out and get active again. And we started to see participation really jump up. Just in the last year, year and a half, we've started to regain a lot of confidence in what the attendance at our events will look like. You know, I think a great story is talking about the Women's College World Series the last two years. This Great pa- event for Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Our biggest week at the museum. We're big fans of the College oh, really? World Series. Absolutely our biggest week. And then spring break. It beats spring break. Uh-huh. I think I think part of the story that maybe not a lot of people in Oklahoma City are familiar with is, well, this past year we were on pace to break every attendance record possible. The only reason we didn't is because the championship didn't go the full three games. So with one less game than we usually have, we still almost set the all-time attendance record, which is near 110,000 people. But I think that that was encouraging just from an overall attendance and participation standpoint when you look at sports is – People are ready to get back out there. People miss being in a stadium. People miss being at the finish line. So I would say we're quite confident that things are going in the right direction, especially for events like the marathon. Yeah, and our numbers look like we're climbing back, and we want to be safe and make sure we take all the precautions. But we're sure hoping we can get back to those numbers and get people back on the streets. We are, too. I know it. And so are the (laughs) hotels and the restaurants. A lot of pressure. Lots of great hotels in downtown Oklahoma City. Tell us a little bit about the influx and the growth of hotels. When we started this race, there was really one, maybe two hotels in downtown Oklahoma City. Now, how many are there? Well, we've got a total count of over 4,000 rooms in the urban core of Oklahoma City right now with our hotel space. So it's just remarkable about the evolution of the hospitality industry in general, but beautiful brand new hotels that ranges from the Omni, of course, but a new Renaissance right in the middle of Bricktown that just opened up a matter of months ago to boutique hotels. When we think about the Ambassador or 21C and those offerings and how they expose you to the arts. So, so many choices now in Oklahoma City from a hotel standpoint. The National was incredible. Was there? Yes. I mean, there's so many great spaces where you can walk to the finish line or the start line very easily. And mm-hmm. I assume people need to get booked early for the marathon weekend. It's all, a good idea. Start all, making your reservations. <laughs> all hotel links are live. You're more than welcome to do so. We would love to see it. <laughs> Even if you live in Oklahoma City, it's a fun weekend to just stay downtown. Well, and it's nice to just be able to roll out of your hotel room to the start line and not have to worry about parking and those types True of things. True that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that way you don't worry about what roads were closing or yes. closing a little early because you can just walk right past it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think something interesting about downtown, too, is is just the new rich assets that we have. So you think about even right now with our expansive green space, with the Myriad Botanical Gardens and the newly renovated Crystal Bridge Conservatory, I mean, just within steps of where all the action takes place, you really have so many attractions to see. Right. And the new 5K course goes south, and then we come back up. We actually run the south the lower park into the upper park. So we're very excited about what that brings to put people inside the park and not just on the streets. You know, I call Scissortail Park the front lawn of our community. And to have runners running adjacent to it and seeing all the wonderful things that's going on with lower Scissortail Park, with the pickleball courts, with the soccer fields, 
with the public displays of art, the trash monster. I don't know if you've yeah. seen. Oklahoma City Beautiful did a great job with that. Gabriel Friedman's piece there that anchors the south portion of Lower Scissortail Park. That park was made possible by Oklahoma City's pennies, which is the best part of it. It, it really mm-hmm. is about the people investing ourselves and paying for that park. And so we did a trial run early January, and we put a 1,000 people out on the streets, and we ran back into the park, and it was you were you yeah were there. it was very it successful. was remarkable yeah and pe- we had really good feedback people about the, loved it about the route loved running over the bridge over I forty and uh, it was it was wildly popular on the training room that's the five k course we wanted to test it out we had our course folks in town looking at it and there really wasn't ever a time where it got so crowded that it couldn't process it and mm-hmm. hold it and so. That's kind of the beauty of the 5K. It starts quick, but then people begin to spread out. But we're excited to, to be in Scissortail Park. It's a great front lawn for our city. You travel all over the country promoting Oklahoma City. What do you talk about when you, when you mention the marathon? Tell us how you sell us. <laughs> well, I think the biggest strength that we have in terms of being able to call the marathon such a strong partner is when we look for city-changing events. And when we're talking to these very prestigious groups like a national governing body, The marathon is always a piece of the conversation because we're able to point to everything that you guys do. And I know that Oklahoma City is capable of handling what you're looking for in a host city because we do it every April with the marathon. So when you're you're talking about runners coming to Oklahoma City for the weekend, what, what will they see and what would they experience in Oklahoma City? Yeah, you know, I touched on the Crystal Bridge Conservatory, and I think we should start there. But then come February and certainly in April, at the Blessed Stanley Rother Shrine of Southeast 89th Street will be open so people can walk through that shrine. Then I think about just some of the recent attractions that we've opened up. Have to start with First Americans Museum. It's still such a jewel as we celebrate the 39 tribes that call this land home right now. And then get out into our neighborhood districts and explore some of our wonderful restaurants from Laotian food at Chef Jeff's Place, Ma Lao in the Plaza District, to what's going on at Chisholm Creek, to the trending Britain District. You go to Chef Jonathan Stranger's New El Coyote and enjoy that cuisine as well. So many things to see throughout the community. What about you all? Where will you be on Marathon Weekend? I think that Carrie really appreciated seeing my support at the uh, start line last year, and then I make my way over to the finish line. But and, in a and much, by make your way in a much more direct manner <laughs> than cart. most everybody else is going from start to finish <laughs> in line. In a golf cart. Um, but I'll say that last year was the first time that I got to be there for the the duration of the event, and you see so many people that we work with day in and day out running the marathon because they believe in the message and the power of the event, and. It's so fun just to see people cross that finish line. I'm just not quite on that list yet, but we'll get there. (laughs) So I think as of today, we have runners from 48 states and seven countries. So we're getting there and uh, bringing in people from around the world, remembering why we run. So we hope they'll take time to visit the Memorial Museum as well when they're here. And uh, that's an important story for them to learn and understand why we do this race, which is different than any other marathon in the country. We don't provide prize money, but we asked you to come run for a mission. Absolutely. And I think that that's a message I definitely don't want to be lost. This is not only an opportunity 
to celebrate and to remember an important part of our history, but it's also an opportunity to tell our story to the rest of the world and the rest of the country. And just to celebrate life. I mean, we, we get today right. and make the very best of right. it. Right. It's a true celebration. And you really see that celebration at the finish line. Yeah. I love it in the city starting in January. You just see people out on the weekends and you know what they're training for. I mean, right. You know that these people are going to be on the road in April on our course. And, and then it's just, just exciting. Right. And for the neighborhoods, we've heard runners come on here and say they've run LA, they've run other races. They There's nothing like the crowd it support. It just doesn't no, compare. Right, in Oklahoma City. So that's a great testament to the people of Oklahoma City. And we know you'll come out for us again. And we're really grateful that you guys came on and joined us today. Yes. And we're thankful for all you do for the city, too, and especially the marathon. Thanks Thank for you coming. both. Yeah, Thank thanks you guys for, for having today. us. We're excited for April. Well, that's a wrap on this week's episode of the Run to Remember podcast. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. The Run to Remember takes place the weekend of April 28th through the 30th. Visit okcmarathon.com to sign up, explore volunteer opportunities, or send podcast questions and comments. This is your host, Kristen Fairs. Thanks for tuning in.